The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. We're really fortunate today to have two speakers who are extremely well qualified to talk on these subjects and to get our discussion going, because both of them have been have been working hard over decades on these questions, um, and. Um, they are David Loy and Santi Caro. So I thought what I'd do is just spend a few minutes, a very few minutes, introducing both David and, and Santi Caro. Um, the structure of the afternoon will be that um, David is going to offer a 40-minute talk on the interdependence of personal and social transformation. And that's going to be followed by uh, a 30-minute response um, by Santi Caro, in which he'll pick up on some of the themes that David laid out and also offer his own perspective on, on the topic. Um, that'll bring us to around 3.15 or so, after which we'll have a, a break for um, getting up, stretching our legs, going to the bathroom, getting a drink of water. Um, and then um, from 3.30 to... to uh, 3.30 to... Uh, to four, we'll break up in small groups in, in which we can all, uh, in, a, in a smaller format, uh, talk about the ideas that came up in David and Santi's talks, and also, really imp- importantly, to, so to, give each, to give each one of us a chance to start to develop our own perspective on this, this broad question. Then we're going to come back and uh, spend the rest of the time sharing the insights and reflections and possibly the other perspectives on this broad topic uh, that came up in the smaller groups. And that'll bring us uh, up to 5 o'clock. Um, let me start by saying a few words about Santi Caro. Uh, Santi Caro was raised in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, went to college at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, or is it Urbana? Um, took off for the Peace Corps. Uh, in Thailand, and uh, I think when he was in the Peace Corps, he noticed that Thailand was a Buddhist nation, and uh, he got interested in Buddhism, and, and very shortly after he left the Peace Corps, he, he uh, joined up uh, with um, uh, a Thai Buddhist master uh, of the 20th century, um, a so-called Thai forest monk, Buddhadasa. Um, and Santi Caro ordained as a monk and uh, lived um, at the monastery or the, the refuge, I should say, the Swan Mok refuge of Buddha Dasa for uh, 14 years, was it, Santi Caro? Yep. And during that time, he was a very close disciple and personal attendant of Buddha Dasa and also became uh, one, of his, if, one of his translators uh, into the English language, if not the major translator. And so many of Buddha Dasa's pamphlets and books that are now in English are, are there thanks to Santi Caro's translation efforts. And it ties in with socially engaged Buddhism because I would say of all the, the, the Thai forest masters, meditation masters, and even among just the you know, many uh, Buddhist meditation masters of the 20th century, Buddha Dasa, more than any of them, really explicitly grappled with the question of uh, connecting individual practice with the, wor- the larger problems of the world. 
And um, after um, disrobing and coming back to the United States, Santi Caro started a, uh, a refuge in western Wisconsin that is explicitly devoted to running along the themes of and the principles of sustainability, um, following the, the laws of nature, listening carefully to nature, right relationship, and uh, right engagement with, uh, with politics, with education, uh, with the larger problems of society. And, um, and so um, Santi Carlos just, he's been steeped in these questions for many years. And we're really lucky to have him here today. And David, um, who's going to start uh, this afternoon, um, took a much different path um, to this area. Uh, he um, uh, went to uh, graduate school, I guess it was. Was the University of Hawaii graduate school for you? Um, and, uh, and then um, after that, uh, went to Singapore for further higher education. Um, and I think somewhere in there got really interested in Zen, and then that Zen interest took him up to Japan, where where he uh, he studied and and undertook many years of uh, Zen Kon training, and uh, at the same time developed a really distinguished academic career where he started writing about Buddhist philosophy, and um, and then in, in later years, uh, much to our good luck, he started to write in a more popular vein and has now written many books um, in uh, vernacular English, you might say, uh, that uh, address, yeah, and enjoy, you know, reading about um, personal and, and social uh, transformation. Um, so David today is a, an authorized Zen teacher, um, uh, as I mentioned, a uh, distinguished academic. He just received a... Um, an honorary doctorate at Carleton College on Saturday, uh, just yesterday, and uh, a popular but also really sophisticated writer uh, on on all these issues. So, again, we're really blessed to have David here as well. So, with that, I'll let David um, kick it off uh, with his talk, and then it'll be Santi Caro, and uh, on from there. So again, thanks for coming, everybody. Question? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I'm Doug McGill. I uh, run a meditation center in uh, Rochester, right down the road. And I'm interested in this topic because my career before I, be before I started running a meditation center was a journalist. And uh, I was a journalist at uh, the New York Times for 10 years as a staff reporter there. Um, and then after that, I was a bureau chief for Bloomberg News in Tokyo, London, and Hong Kong, uh, writing about the um, institutionalized greed that uh, David has, uh, you know, written about so, so, so accurately. Uh, and I was kind of in the heart of the beast there. And uh, I moved back to Minnesota in 2000 and uh, have been running the center since then. And uh, that's me. Thanks. Okay. Off we go. Pass it on. Does this work? Can you hear me okay? okay. Um, 
First of all, thank you to Doug, not only for that, for those generous introductions, but also this workshop is really his his vision and his energy and organization that that has really made it possible. So uh, that's why we're all here. Uh, I'm also really delighted to be doing this with my old friend Santi Caro, who uh, we got to know each other many years ago when we were both living in Asia. Since then, we've reconnected here, but it's been quite a while, a number of years now, so it's really a pleasure to be doing it with him as well. Um, I'd like to start off with a quotation, something that the Zen poet Gary Snyder uh, published in, in an essay on Buddhist anarchism about 50 years ago. It's now, I think, become a rather well-known phrase. He said this, the mercy of the West has been social transformation. The mercy of the East has been insight into the basic self slash void. I think now we'd probably say it, uh, at least in the Zen world, we'd say insight into the emptiness of the self. And then Gary Snyder ended that by saying, we need both. And that's really what I want to talk about today. Another way to say that, I think, is that the highest ideal of the Western tradition has been social transformation. And the highest ideal of the Buddhist traditions uh, has been individual transformation. And the issue is really, what's the relationship between them? It seems to me, just looking at the West for a moment, and this is another way of sort of elaborating, that to say the highest ideal of the West has been social transformation, it's it's this realization that we can reorganize how it is that we live together in order to live in a more socially just way. Something that's been extremely important for, I mean, in the modern world, just thinking about the development of democracy, uh, human rights, civil rights, bill of rights, uh, anti-slavery movement, uh, civil rights movement, more recently, things like feminism, gay rights, how important they've all been, how much we've all been affected by them. And yet they are not traditional Buddhist concerns. You do not find those emphasized in the Buddhist tradition, for the most part. Whereas on the other side, when we look to Buddhism, of course, the emphasis has been very much on, also I would say transformation. The way that I would put it, I would say Buddhism has been concerned about... ideal of the Western tradition, certainly in the modern world, is social transformation. Uh, and the highest ideal of the Buddhist tradition, or traditions, has been individual transformation, or as I would say, the, uh, the emphasis has been on 
deconstructing and reconstructing the sense of self. Um, and it seems to me today that we need both, not simply because those two ideals go together, but more deeply than that, that I think each ideal needs the other if it's going to be successful enough. And I think we're at a kind of unique time in human history when we can see that pretty clearly. And also a unique time when, thanks to globalization, you know, these two great traditions come together. We can appreciate, you know, what they have to offer each other and what they can learn from each other. So that's really what I want to spend a bit of time elaborating. Uh, and the way I'd like to do that is by beginning with a focus on morality or ethics and the different attitude or the different function of morality within, say, the Abrahamic traditions, Judeo-Christian, Islamic, which have been so important in the development of the West, and sort of compare and contrast that with the function of morality within the Buddhist traditions. And I think you'll see what I'm, what I'm getting at there. So that's the basic plan. Starting with the Abrahamic. Sometimes we describe the Abrahamic traditions as ethical monotheism. And when we do that, we usually think about the monotheism, the one God. But I actually want to focus on the ethical. Because what really seems to me distinctive about the Abrahamic traditions is that what it means to be religious is that one is living in the way that God wants you to. In other words, God gives us certain guidelines, laws, rules, whatever, about how we should live with the idea that he'll somehow take care of us if we do what he says, and we will get into a lot of trouble if we don't. In other words, you could say that the, the, the crucial duality in the Abrahamic traditions, uh, including Judaism and Christianity, is good versus evil. And the big issue is our own will. Where do we stand on that spectrum? Is our own will in accord with the will of God, or are we somehow opposing it? Right? And I think it goes all the way back. You go back to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I think it's a fascinating story. To me, I read it as a, a fable about the development of self-consciousness, right? How it is that as Adam and Eve uh, wake up, just as the snake said they would, uh, they realize they're naked and they, they have to put on clothes and hide from the face of God. There's definitely something going on there about increase in self-consciousness. But that's not the way the tradition focuses, right? If you think about what's emphasized, what is it? They disobeyed God. They committed a sin for which they're expelled from the garden. So from the very beginning, it's all about sin. It's all about not doing what God wants us to do. Think a bit later, uh, Noah's flood. Why does God kill everyone except the animals on the ark? Because we weren't living in the way that he wants us to. I sometimes wonder about all those poor animals, you know, only like one pair of each, what those other animals did to deserve getting drowned. But uh, we'll leave that for the moment. And then later on, the Mosaic, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments given to Moses, you know, very expensive. Uh, and even later when we come to Jesus, Jesus, you could say, with a little bit of help from Paul, adds a new aspect to this where you know he, he has a more personal relationship with God the Father, Abba and a lot more emphasis on love but fundamentally it's the same story you know, there's a God and 
God is telling us how to live and what it means to be religious is to live in that way. Now you may be wondering, why am I going into such detail on an Abrahamic God when probably most of us here aren't terribly interested in, in that sort of God? The point is, I think this remains our favorite story or let's say favorite spectacles with which we understand the world. We tend to see the world in this way. I mean, just think about well, here I reveal my age, right? I mean, I grew up with James Bond. Right? What's the story? It's the battle of good against evil. Um, nowadays we have Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Wars, Harry Potter, every detective novel and crime series on TV, you know, they're all making the same point, that um, it's all about this struggle between good and evil that we're so fascinated by. But here's the thing, from a Buddhist perspective, it seems to me that this central duality, seeing the world through these eyes, that there's something wonderful about it, but also something very problematical. Or to say it another way, the story of good and evil is itself both good and evil. Let me just start out with the, the negative side of it for a moment. You know, Buddhism has a lot of teachings about the way that our ways of thinking deceive or mislead us. And a classic example of that is what's called dualistic thinking. By dualistic thinking, I'm referring to thinking in bipolar opposites, like high-low, big-small, light, dark, uh, and so forth. And what's really interesting about these kinds of dualisms is that it seems like we have two concepts, but if you really think about it, they're two sides of the same concept. In other words, you don't know what big, what the word big means unless you know what the word small means. So it's kind of two sides of the same thing, right? Um, and in many cases, that's kind of innocuous, okay? But in some cases, it becomes very problematical. The fact of dualistic bipolar thinking is that you cannot have one without the other. You, you can't know what high means until you know what low means. And a very good example of that would be, say, thinking in terms of purity and impurity, which is often very important spectacles for a lot of spiritual people. The point about impurity and purity, and it doesn't matter how you understand what purity is, but if the most important thing for you is to live a pure life, what it means is that you are forever going to be preoccupied with impurity. You can't have one without the other because you, in every situation, you have to differentiate. Is this pure? Is this impure? You can't have the one spectacle without the other, you see. Now, in the case of purity-impurity, that may be why the great Chan master, Hui Hai, said, true purity is to live beyond purity and impurity. Maybe the best example, the classic example of dualistic thinking is precisely the one that we picked out, good versus evil. In this case, it means that we don't know what's good until we know what's evil. If you want to be good, you've got to find an evil that you're not doing. And likewise, if we want to feel good about ourselves, we have to find an evil that we're fighting against, because that's what it means to be good, preferably an evil outside ourselves. And this is the kind of dilemma that I think has so often recurred, especially in the European and Western tradition. 
mean, think about heresy trials, inquisitions, witchcraft, and so forth. How much being spiritual, being religious has been about finding evil, finding those who are influenced by Satan and destroying them in one way or another, stopping them, you see. And I think, though, it's not just something that applies in terms of religion. I think we can see it even in something like the, the war on terror. In a way, that's a kind of a classic example. Especially if we ask, well, what was the real difference between George W. Bush and Osama bin Laden? Seems to me they were both fighting the same holy war of good against evil. What the one side thought was good, the other side thought was evil. But fundamentally, it was the same idea. It's not simply that we're good and you're evil, but part of being my being good, whether you're George W. Bush or Osama bin Laden, is that we are trying to destroy the evil. That's how we identify ourselves as good. And what all this points to is this really tragic paradox of history, that one of the main causes of evil in our world has been our attempts to destroy evil. That's what I'm really trying to point out here. Again, one of the main causes of evil, and I'm thinking about the history, especially of the Western tradition, has been our attempts to destroy evil. More recently, think of somebody like Hitler. What was he trying to do? He was trying to purify the earth by eliminating what he thought were the evil or the impure elements, right? The Jews, the Romani, the homosexuals, whatever. Or Stalin in the Soviet Union trying to get rid of the kulaks, the slightly wealthier peasants. Or Mao Zedong in China with the landlords. It's the same attitude. You purify the earth by getting rid of the evil, the bad. And that great irony, of course, is that in the process of doing that, that has created perhaps more evil than, than anything else. Maybe, it just occurred to me now, maybe we shouldn't go so far away. Was something like that going on with the way that we oppressed the Native Americans? I don't know if they were evil. Maybe that's not the word. But they were savages, right? They were savages trying to kill us. So they had to be you know, controlled and so forth, maybe. So there's definitely a problem there with this duality between good and evil. But here's the other side of it. There's also really something, something wonderful that I think leads to you know, the emphasis on social justice in, in the modern West. And that is to say, if you go back to the very roots of the Abrahamic tradition, go back to the Hebrew prophets, what are they doing? They're basically fulminating against unjust rulers, kings who are oppressing, right? They're criticizing the kings. You're taking advantage of the orphans and the poor and the widows, and God is going to punish you for that. And then they would run back to their flocks in the hills and so forth. This created a concern that has been very important, especially when you combine it with the other root of the Western tradition, which is the Greek realization that Society isn't natural in the way that uh, ecosystems are. Actually, the way that we live together is something that we construct and we can, be, we can reconstruct. In other words, the Greeks really realized that society isn't something natural, but it's something that we have control of. And so in their reconstruction, they created, we trace back democracy, back to them, right? Their democracy wasn't all that great, no women, no slaves and all that. But they started something. It was this realization 
we can restructure how we live together, add that to the Abrahamic prophetic concern that we should be concerned about social justice. And what we end up with, I think, has been this main ideal of the modern West, which, again, I want to emphasize, it's not been that way in the Buddhist tradition, as far as I can see. Santikaro may have some different perspective on this. But basically, I don't see that operating within the Buddhist tradition. But it has been so formative in creating the possibilities that have been unfolded in the modern West and that are, in fact, um, that, that we're all beneficiaries of here. So, now that we have this great ideal of social justice, everything is okay, right? Right? No, people aren't, people, people aren't so sure. Uh, I mean, we have the ideal, but the reality somehow never seems to match up to the ideal, it does it. Why not? What's the problem? What gets in the way? Is it the case that we haven't tried enough in our re... Inst you know, changing our institutions to become more socially just? Or might it be the case that what we're working toward maybe can't be achieved just by reorganizing our social structures? Maybe something more is needed. Is it possible that we could have the best possible democracy and the best possible economic system, whatever that may be, but if those of us living in that system, if we're still motivated by what Buddhism calls the three poisons, greed, evil, and illusion, is that system really going to work well enough? I think you can see what I'm pointing to here. Give an example. Suppose I'm a revolutionary leader who sort of overthrows some really nasty dictator. So now, I have, now I'm the supreme power. But if my mind, if I, if I haven't worked in myself, if my mind, if there's still lots of greed, ill will, delusion, what's likely to happen? Well, if I have a lot of greed, it's going to be very hard not to take advantage of my power for my own personal benefit. Right? If I have a lot of ill will, it's going to be very hard not to see the people who have different ideas than me as opponents or enemies to be eliminated or controlled. And if I still have this delusion that I'm the great one, I'm the wise one, I know all the solutions to society's ills, and it's simply a matter of applying my ideas, are we going to have a great new society, or is it going to break down, cause problems itself, you see? In other words, maybe the kind of transformation we're working toward can't be achieved simply by restructuring our institutions, maybe it also requires something more, some kind of individual transformation. And it seems to me, frankly, that's what we're kind of bumping up against. Why is it politicians so often become so corrupt once they have power? You know, sometimes before, but often afterwards as well. What is it? Why does that so pattern so often recur? So I think you can see my point here. We have this great tradition, this highest ideal in the West, that we can restructure our way of living together so that it's more socially just. But what I'm trying to emphasize here is the limitations of that, how that in and of itself may not be enough. Does that, does that make sense? So let me shift to the other side, though, and now talk a little bit about Buddhism. I started out by talking about um, 
different attitudes toward morality and emphasizing how it seemed to me the fundamental, the, the really heart, the, the fundamental axis of the Abrahamic traditions is good versus evil, morality. Well, as we know, morality is important in Buddhism too. We've got the five precepts and so forth. But nonetheless, it's somewhat different. There's much more of a sense that, you know, the precepts aren't given to us by God. They're like vows that we take to train ourselves in a certain way. And the realization that if we don't, that when we break the precepts, we're going to suffer because of the nature of karma. Right? And there's even a sense in the Buddhist tradition, certainly very strong in, in Zen, which is my own practice tradition, that there's a sense in which the precepts are kind of like training wheels in a bicycle. That they're very important to learn how to live in a certain kind of way, but there's the strong implication if you really wake up, if you really realize your true nature, then you will not be inclined to abuse or take advantage of other people. It's very interesting because we're also so aware of many cases where this doesn't seem to be the case. Again, in my own tradition, there are so many examples of scandals among Zen teachers which we may or may not have time to get into. But there's still very much this idea that for Buddhism, the fundamental axis is not good versus evil. It really is more cognitive. It's delusion versus wisdom. It's ignorance versus awakening. Which gives it a very different flavor. A very different flavor from the, the West. And likewise, the focus hasn't been on social justice. The focus is much more on dukkha. Uh, suffering the end of dukkha, which, and I assume that's a term everyone here is familiar with, dukkha meaning suffering in the broadest sense, not just physical and psychological pain, but dissatisfaction, dis-ease, basically our, our inability to be, to be happy for, for very long. What I find fascinating is this question, okay, the way the Buddhist tradition developed, the focus has been very much on my own individual dukkha, my own individual karma, my own individual awakening, and very much the sense that it's separate from somebody else's. And this is where it gets tricky, because I think in the modern world we have much more of a sense of what you might call social dukkha, institutionalized dukkha. What do I mean by that? I remember I listened to a Tibetan teacher talk once, and he said, among other things, Oh, what terrible karma all those Jews born into Nazi Germany must have had to be born at that particular... Oh, come on, get off it. Let's stop blaming the victim. This is simply unacceptable, and I think we need to get beyond that, okay? We know too much about how institutions function, how people can get caught up in social movements. And I'm not, I don't think we should blame the Jews who got killed by Hitler for being... for for. for as it were, being born in that place because they deserve to be born in that place. I, I find that really completely unacceptable today. Right? And also, when I go back to the earliest teachings, I get the sense that the Buddha was a lot more progressive teacher than the Theravada tradition was able to preserve. Especially when you look at his attitude toward women and caste. Right? Women, all the Buddhist traditions are patriarchal. But when I go back to the Pali Canon and I look at what the Buddha did in that context, the way that he created a bhikkhuni sangha, with the acknowledgement that women have the same potential to awaken as men. Now today we take that for granted, but in that time it's just huge, huge 
given that women in Brahminical culture, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't even chant the Vedas or they get their tongue cut off or mouth filled with molten metal or something. I mean, this, this was huge. And also his attitude toward caste, the fact that you lost caste when you joined the Sangha. Some scholars have speculated and argued that the Buddha had a much broader social vision. He wasn't just trying to start a religion in the sense that we tend to think now, but that he was actually creating a new a new way of understanding what it meant to be human that would transform the whole civilization. So I think we need to be very careful about not seeing the Buddha only through the eyes of what came later. The problem, it seems to me, and here I'm going to challenge any Theravadans in this room a little bit, it seemed to me that a lot of this progressive vision was lost once the Buddha died. That once he was gone, certain sort of more conservative forces reasserted themselves. And in order for the Sangha to survive, it came to an accommodation with the state, which meant that it never had, it could never have that kind of radical approach to social dukkha that I referred to earlier. What do I mean by that? The early Sangha, it got a lot of support from the state financially, but also even toleration, right? You've got to remember, none of these Buddhist societies was democratic all authoritarian, and if the king didn't like what you were doing, you were in big trouble. So, it's the old quid pro quo. If you want to be supported by the state, well, you better support the state. And Buddhism had a very nice little way to do that. The karma teaching, right? You're born a king, that, that person, you know, well, you must deserve to be born as a king from your past karma. You're born poor, maybe disabled in some way, don't blame anybody else, right? And likewise, you're born a woman, I'm sorry, but if you behave yourself, do what we men tell you, then maybe in a future lifetime you might be reborn, right? Okay, we, we can laugh about this, but this is the way the karma teaching became institutionalized. This is the way, and then it became transformed into this merit-making for future lifetimes. And it became, you know, really, really problematical. So that because of this, the way the Buddhist tradition has developed, again, this wonderful emphasis. Buddhism has the greatest collection by far of contemplative practices that can help us transform ourselves. But the whole way the tradition has developed is it's very much my own dukkha, my own karma, my own awakening. And, you know, I hope you guys are going to awaken too but whether or not you awaken, you know, I'm going to Nibbana, whatever. And it's, it, it, it's very, it's encouraged this kind of individual salvation, this individual solution. And it has not had the opportunity to develop this more social perspective, this broader perspective on Dukkha. Can you see where I'm going here? Just as earlier I was saying the West has this wonderful tradition highest ideal of social justice, but is lacking on the individual transformation. So Buddhism has done this wonderful job of developing these practices that can help us transform ourselves. But nonetheless, it hasn't been able to develop this dimension, this larger understanding of social institutionalized dukkha. One way to summarize all this is to talk about it in terms of two different types of freedom. 
actually, I don't think they're two different types at all. I think they're two aspects of the same freedom, two sides of the same coin, right? So the Western tradition has developed concern for institutionalized freedom, right? We're concerned to pass laws. You can't discriminate. You can't have one school for white people and a segregated school for black people. We've been concerned to pass all kinds of laws to make sure that we live in an equal society uh, in many different types of ways. But nonetheless, please consider, you might live, as I said, in the most perfect possible democracy, but if your mind is still filled with these three motivations, for example. If, if what you do is still motivated by greed, ill will, delusion, are you really free? From a Buddhist perspective, I think we'd say no. You are still at the mercy of your karma, your, your mental tendencies that you don't really understand. That there's, you know, I, I don't know if anyone here reads Time. I saw a few months ago they had a special issue, issue on T. Boone Pickens. Anybody see that? Very wealthy guy, top billionaire. His book was called The First Billion is the Hardest. And the front page was a picture of Tebow. And it's interesting because inside it went a lot about him. And he's very clear. He's in it making as much money as he can, right? As much money as he can. And his face on the cover, he was like the unhappiest guy I've ever seen on the cover of Time. Is this guy free? I think he's at the mercy of his own greed and he doesn't understand. You know, there are other ways to live. But on the other side, consider what it means to be a Buddhist. Suppose that you're a Buddhist. Maybe you're the most enlightened Buddhist in the world. But if you live in Burma, maybe one generation ago, where the generals control everything and take all the power, where you can't speak freely, where your family has nothing, where you're oppressed by a very nasty military dictatorship. Are you free either? I would say, no, not really. We need both types of freedom. And that's what's really exciting about living in the modern world because part of this globalization process is the Western ideal, and it's no longer just the Western ideal, right? It's the modern ideal. The the modern ideal of democracy, social justice, in principle, comes together with the Buddhist emphasis on personal transformation. And we realize that we can bring them together. And in a way, I think within the Buddhist tradition, actually, we have a model that can easily be adopted in that direction. I'm referring to now the Bodhisattva path. What's distinctive about the Bodhisattva path is that there's a dual practice. On the one side, the Bodhisattva, he or she, and let's say she, as it's usually talked about as a he, so let's say she. The bodhisattva has her practice continuing her own meditation to deepen their own equanimity, their serenity, their realization of emptiness. That continues. That practice is there. But also, what's becoming clear now, given the kind of world we're in, with the kind of economic and ecological challenges we're now facing, what's becoming clear is that the... Bodhisattva, it's not just a matter of sitting on your butt, facing the wall, right? 
and, and somehow that's enough. That's where we all start. We come to Buddhism because we suffer, because there's something not working in our lives. And so we practice in order to get a deeper understanding and resolve that. But if we continue to become so self-absorbed indefinitely, there comes a point where that self-preoccupation is part of the problem, not the solution. As we begin to open up, as we begin to realize that we're not separate from other people, the bodhisattva path opens up too in the realization that, okay, my path is not just about my own awakening, me, 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 but the path is about realizing that who I really am is not separate from all of you. Nisargadatta expressed this really well when he said, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns, right? Wisdom and compassion, the two pillars of the Buddha's path. So, to conclude here, it seems to me we have this wonderful archetype within the Buddhist tradition that allows us to bring these two traditions together. And it's not that there are two types of practice. As I begin to open up and realize that I'm not separate from you, my practice naturally involves being concerned. I mean, one way to say it, if I'm not separate from you, how can I be fully enlightened unless all of you are enlightened too? How can I be fully free if you're not also free, you see? So there's a sense in which the practice gets beyond my own self-preoccupation and moves in the direction of not what can I get out of this situation, what's in it for me, but turning that around and asking, what can I do to make this situation better? Because I'm not just me, I'm, I'm the whole situation. And that, I think, is what we're really called upon to do. In this time of real crisis, not only ecological, but economic, and maybe political. I think we are really all in different ways being called upon to be bodhisattvas, to expand our vision of the Buddhist path in order to move beyond our own awakening and realize that our own awakening ultimately cannot be separated from what's going on in society as a whole. So for me, that's the way that the two principles, the two ideals, the personal transformation and the social transformation really do need to come together. So I think I'll stop there and turn it over to Santikaro. honors first. Um, first, it's an honor to share a platform with David. I consider him to be 
I won't say the most because superlatives are dangerous, but definitely one of the most important Buddhist social thinkers we have in the West. Unfortunately, he doesn't have enough competition. <laughs> but um, there have been and remain some Asian Buddhists who are really thinking about these issues. Um, people like Sulak Sivaraksha, for one, um, spacing out on the guy in Sri Lanka. Yeah, Ayaratna with Sarvodaya and younger disciples of theirs, not to mention Thich Nhat Hanh and what happened in Vietnam, etc., etc. But in the West, David has been doing some brilliant stuff, including when he lived in Japan, uh, bringing together these two traditions and at times critiquing the West through Buddhist eyes, uh, generally because his audience has been more Western, perhaps, than Asian. So I'm, I'm honored to uh, share this occasion with him. I also want to honor Doug for his role in pulling this together and for Mark and Common Ground for hosting. As Doug said, I and David and others have been exploring these issues for decades. And so I'm of the opinion that many, many forum like this, especially because uh, civilizationally we're really stuck, and that it's not just here. The whole modern project, democracy, capitalism, is really stuck. Things are going backwards around the world, not just in Iraq <laughs> or Syria. Thailand had another coup. And coups are part of the modern Western technology. It's not a traditional... In the old days of kings, you would just quietly assassinate the competition. You didn't have to do a coup. Coups were created by modern technology, which in the case of places like Thailand is a Western import. So by claiming that we are really stuck, and that means nobody has the answer. One of the dangers that was behind, but maybe not explicit in what David was saying, <coughs> Too often the West thinks it has the answers. But many Buddhists think we've got the answer. And we're at a time when we really need to open that up, that nobody by themselves has the answer. And I hope that occasions like this, 
conversations that ripple from events like this are part of not finding the answer, but finding day-to-day concrete answers, which, which I'll try to come back to. David mentioned Theravada. I, I don't identify as Theravada, so I didn't take any of that personally. Actually, Theravada, in the way David used the word, has only been around 120, 130 years. So, but this isn't the time to get into those, uh, those details. A couple things, though, that I want to connect what David was getting at, and I strongly agree and fully support his main thesis and the secondary ones. I want to support that by connecting a little more with early Buddhist teachings, which is where I go for a lot of inspiration. Um, There's a summary of the Buddha's teaching that you've all heard in one translation or another. Sapa papatsa akaranang. I don't memorize much Pali, but this is one I managed to retain. Um, Not doing, literally not doing all evil, not doing any evil. Gusalatsu batsambata, accomplished in what is wholesome. Sajita pariyotapanang thoroughly purifying the mind, the heart. Much of a traditional Theravada, as we have it in the last century or two, comes back to this over and over again because it's reputed to be the teaching of all Buddhas. A fully awakened being doesn't just say, don't do bad, do good. But they do say those things. Uh, Some of those scandals David mentioned happen because some people think they're above and we no longer need the training wheels of the precepts. Most of us still do as we gain independence. But also in this teaching of all Buddhas is the... Part of the the word here, um, I use the word purifying. That's not quite literally. It's I've been toying with translating it as luminous, which is also not um, literal. But in early Buddhist teachings, the luminous mind is the mind that's no longer stuck in dualities. Now, some Theravadins insist that Theravada is dualistic. I would say maybe so, but the Buddha wasn't. Um, That's another argument for another time. But if you want an early Buddhist frame for part of David's message, I think this helps. Recognizing that 
we have the capacity to do really nasty stuff, personally and definitely collectively. Nobody is free of that. And we have the capacity to do what's kind, what's wholesome, to think and feel in wholesome, constructive ways. But that's not the whole path. The path is also to thoroughly awaken the inherent luminosity. Now, early Buddhism didn't quite call it inherent, but there are implications of that. So that's um, one, one piece I want to contribute to this. I also want to add the, to go back to the Garden of Eden, they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I share David's interpretation of the story, who I heard, first heard from Ajahn Buddhadasa, that it's by eating the fruit, buying into good and evil, that were thrown into, in Buddha's terms, samsara. And I don't take it as all those lifetimes, but the samsara of ego birth and death. I have a whole jumble of notes I'm trying to navigate here. So David spoke very well about the problematic of the good-evil dualism. I'd like to play around with some other but related ones. Implied is the dualism between individual and society. Following the main thrust, or a big part of David's talk, we could say, in some ways, although, no, nah, I'm not going to go there, it falls apart, but David emphasized the social justice, social transformation that the has been the great ideal of the West. Buddhism, maybe other forms of Asian spirituality as well, it's been more about the individual transformation. What if that is another dualism that gets in the way of the heart, the mind's inherent freedom and luminosity? Words like luminosity, I'm not going to use the word purity. Ajahn Buddhadasa called it the highest prison to be trapped in the prison of purity for reasons that David already explained. But luminosity, freedom, awakening, these are a cluster that I think is important to not just grab onto one word because then we reify it. And, and we end up with a duality. But to use whatever our tradition, a number of, like the Buddha came at these things from different angles to help us not get stuck 
in a position, which is where we get trapped. I've heard people over the years stuck and trapped into debates. Well, do I liberate myself first and then others? That's just an excuse not to bother with others. People will point to texts, but it ends up being ideology or rationalization. Or I've also met plenty of activists who don't have time for the personal work. I've seen plenty of nonprofits or NGOs, not to mention religious groups, government agencies, corporations, where people don't have time for the personal work because they're saving this or that or making money or accumulating power or whatever. So I think we need to become sensitive to the rationalizations, especially in ourselves, because we're subject to the same forces, both individually and collectively. To notice how we keep falling into either or. What I'm hearing in David's message is the middle way, which he spoke of at the end as the bodhisattva path, which it's no longer my dukkha versus your dukkha. And as David acknowledged, that's where we often start. But when practice deepens, and I don't just mean Buddhist practice, I mean any legitimate spiritual practice, and I've met um, labor organizers, I've met card-carrying communists who have the heart and the selflessness that didn't always fit with the ideology that it was no longer, I'm going to solve my problems first, or I'm going to focus on your problems and ignore or repress my own, but to see that you can't pull them apart. It's our dukkha, it's our problems. And if there's ever a time in human history that's screaming at us to get it, this is it. Things are regressing in many parts of the world and there's massive climate disruption taking place. So something is screaming. And I think the middle way is it's time to no longer be caught in the false duality between my problems, your problems, our problems, their problems. Or even take Iraq, the, what's going on right now. Nobody's, at least on the level of the public political discourse, is willing to really ask, how is what's going on something we co-created? It's always, let's blame somebody else, it's, and then it's their problem, leave them to it, or it's their problem, we've got to go help them. 
It's not their problem. It's our problem. To go from this level that we've been talking at, which is very big, and I personally feel and meet many people who are intimidated by the hugeness of climate change, the corruption in our democracy, let alone what's happening in, say, Thai democracy, which is going backwards largely with help from the CIA and the black ops sites that we paid for in Thailand, which has corrupted things. But it's not just our fault. <laughs> there are things going on uh, by people who don't look like they're from Chicago. They look like they're from Thailand, and they're, they're playing the game, too. Some of these seem really huge, so I'm going to pull on a couple more threads to look at our path in what I believe to be the appropriate size container that we, we can handle and find support. David mentioned sila, often translated ethics, morality. It also just means virtue. In the village Buddhism, not the national institution nor the individualistic level, but in the village Buddhism that I caught just the end of before it's been more or less wiped out, not totally, but really decimated by modern forces. And stories I heard from Ajahn Buddhadasa and others, plus some reading. Sila in a Thai Buddhist village, when it worked, was not just an individual practice. It was never to construe that aspect of so-called Theravada as individualistic is to not understand it. It was very communal. That monks followed their monastic code, that so-called lay people followed precepts, was a village, a communal thing. Some people were better at it than others. Yes, there were individuals. But things like gossip, peer pressure, praise, villages. Um, I'm reluctant to quote Hillary Clinton given her warmongering, but villages raising children. It's not just mom and dad. It's extended families. These values grew up in villages, not metropolises like Bangkok or the Twin Cities, but in villages. Now, I'm not saying we have to go back to that. I don't know how, though I live in a rural area. But in many parts of Buddhist history, ethics played out 
on the level of the village, which in Theravada countries like Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka was centered in monasteries. And monastic, there's often uh, illusion in the West, an assumption based on our Christian past that monasteries are separate from villages. That's very erroneous. Some monasteries, some forest monasteries, are quite distant, but you had to be able to walk to the village to get food. So from the beginning, there was a symbiotic relationship. I could say much more. But ethics and virtue played out communally, not just individually. But I'm highlighting this level because it's not the level of government decree or monarchs saying, do this, don't that. I also want to point out, though I know less about this, until five, six hundred years ago, the Thai state wasn't a state. There, they were called Mung, which now means a city. So they're maybe a little like the early city-states of Italy uh, around the nine pre pre-Middle Ages, or 900, 1,000, they weren't that big. And so the gap between the rulers and the ruled was much smaller than developed later with monarchies. Also in Buddhist history, the later feudal states post-dated a much more elaborate feudal picture back onto the simpler polities that existed. I don't have time to pursue this much more, but what I'm looking at are some intermediary levels, which I would include community that happens in practice centers like Common Ground, that part of working out this bringing together of inner personal transformation and outer social transformation will happen in neighborhoods, villages, communities. There's some evidence from what I know of Thai history that there would be a trickle-up effect when the gap wasn't too big because then the ruler was more of a chief. Like often the Buddha's father is, was, is supposedly a king. Totally impossible. At most he was a chief first among other chiefs. On that level, you cannot be autocratic. You have to be very sensitive to the community. And so there's a lot more restraint that's possible. Look what's happening in our country where the restraints that we can put on the ruling class and the big, huge corporations, they're being dismantled one by one. Now, intelligence, uh, if you work in intelligence, 
which is euphemistically called a community, that's really sick. But they use that word. It's not a community. It's a cabal. And, but if, if they speak to the press unauthorized, even if it's the most innocuous thing and it's not secret, they can lose their job. So how do we lessen the gap? How do we build intermediary structures that support both personal transformation and can start to restrain power, the greed? Um, David may not know this, but the trains that come through Minneapolis through my area are six, eight hours late. Why? What can we do about this? If we're just individuals, nothing. So I think this is our real challenge to, to take what we've got in neighborhoods, centers like this, and deepen our ethical commitment, keep working on our personal transformation, and be exploring the bigger transformation. It's a big ticket. But if we really care about our species, the planet, our suffering, I, I can't see any way, any other way. I'm speaking with more of, I think David shares my desperation. He just didn't put it as bluntly as I'm trying to do. <laughs> You know, we're in a big mess, and it's going to be hard work to get out. But to me, that's what's meaningful at this point in history. And um, this I'll talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.